News from Haiti, an entity known as the Night Phantom is believed to be attacking construction sites and power plants, notably the Stark Industries-funded Project Caribbean. The mutant hunting robots known as Sentinels have reappeared in the wake of a series of explosions in Egypt, for which authorities are blaming mutant terror groups. In the Pacific Ocean, the United States Navy has come into conflict with the Submariner, who appears to be in league with Captain Barracuda. They are believed to have stolen an experimental sonic magnodirectoid. And there have been widespread reports of aliens from outer space taking the form of television sets. That story, however, has been traced to a piece in a recent Silver Surfer comic book, its publisher, the famously accurate Marvel Comics, claims that the story is presented as it was told to one of the magazine's contributors, and therefore qualified for the Comics Code Authority seal on the grounds of being accurately reported speech. This is Doombot RF4 for the VOL. Zero, two, zero. This is, the voice of Latvia. Zero, two, zero. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. Every week on The Voice of Latveria, we examine Marvel Comics history, through the career of its greatest hero, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And now, here's your host, Douglas Walk, the man who has read every Marvel superhero comic book, and lived to tell us all about it. Thank you, Doombot MD12. This week we're looking at Fantastic Four, number 84 to 87. And our guest this week is Charles Hatfield, professor of English at California State University. He's the author or co-editor of four books of comic studies, including Hand of Fire, The Comics Art of Jack Kirby. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk a little about the general overview of uh, what we're looking at this time. Fantastic Four, 84 to 87. You are the Kirby expert, pretty much. Where does this fit in where Kirby was at that point in time? Well, there is a kind of disconcerting drop-off, in a way, uh, for Kirby at Marvel after 1968 or thereabouts. He would not um, uh, leave Marvel for another couple of years, uh, but there is a sense of... Uh, many people think, and, and I suppose I agree, that there's a sense of treading water uh, uh, and there's a sense of recycling without um, moving forward. But there's also a sense uh, when you're dealing with um, uh, Kirby anytime that his passions of the moment uh, are going to inspire, if not hijack, <laughs> the, the storytelling. And so even though people um, often look at Fantastic Four after 1967 and think that, you know, the afflatus is gone, um, the air is leaving the balloon, you know, uh, and Kirby's spirit is not there, you can still see him responding uh, to whatever it is that has gripped his interest uh, in the culture. Uh, a little bit like a, a, a weather vane or a windsock. He's going this way and that. So, you know, in his last couple of years at Marvel in the late 60s, um, he is continuing to draw the Fantastic Four and he's continuing to draw Thor. Um, and at some point, Captain America will leave his hands and I think Gene Colan will take it up as an artist. Um, but Kirby is still quite busy at Marvel and Stanley's behest. Uh, he no longer has the peak workload that he had in the early to mid 60s. Uh, and he's no longer um, supplying uh, layouts and notions for other artists to complete so much. Um, uh, he has tunneled in on just a couple of books, um, but he continues with his you know, very long and heroic, you know, more than 100 issue run on Fantastic Four. Uh, and where we're settling in, we find him about uh, a year and a half to two years out uh, from cutting that cord. Right. All right. So that's uh, about where we're at. And I was tracking the output of Marvel publication uh, in the years just before and years just after the issues that we're talking about and, and observing the tremendous up and down of the graph of Marvel publication. Um, you know, in 68, as ownership of the company changes hands, uh, sometimes uh, it appears that uh, Marvel might release um, – 10 comics in a four weeks. And then again, more than 20 comics in the four weeks after that. Uh, these are estimates based on sources like Mike Voyle's Amazing World site, 
uh, and the Grand Comics database and other sources. But yeah, the graph of production or release is really up and down. But you can say that Marvel has really expanded production um, over what it had been a year or a year and a half previous to the comics that we're talking about. So yeah, it, it's really um, a wiggly sort of oscilloscope kind of <laughs> graph uh, of, of production. So uh, I was very interested in that. I was also very interested to see um, uh, where Victor Von Doom had been um, just shortly before Fantastic Four 84. Uh, and in fact, he'd been on a bit of a holiday from Fantastic Four. Uh, yeah. He hadn't much figured in the two years previous, uh, which is unusual. Yeah, uh, Kirby had not come back to him for a while. Kirby was off doing doing other stuff and continuing uh, a lot of stuff with the Inhumans. Uh, the the mm -hmm. last big FF storyline we looked at with Doom is 57 to 60. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's the Doom steals the Silver Surfer's power story. Mm -hmm. But also like a solid third of it is Inhuman stuff that doesn't have anything to do with that plot. Right, and I reread those actually just a couple of days ago, uh, and noticed the cross-cutting. Uh, the cross-cutting is furious. You know, you go from the humans in the hidden land to the main Doom and Surfer plot, uh, and I mean that's an example of of not recycling, but actually consolidating a lot of good stuff that had come into the Fantastic Four in the mid '60s. And, and really taking it further. That's a glorious uh, period, you know, after characters like the Inhumans and the Black Panther and the Silver Surfer and Galactus have been introduced. There's a glorious period of uh, repurposing and revisiting these characters while pushing things further. And the Inhumans are a good plot engine for that. You know, Johnny and Crystal's unrequited love for one another and their separation is a good uh, plot engine for that. Um, so, uh, all, all of that is going on. I think a little bit later, um, between about 68 and 1970, there is among many readers a sense that, it, that it's more in the nature of recycling, right? Um, uh, um, in, in, in sort of a stationary bike sense, you know, kind of, kind of um, moving in place. Um, but I think 57 through 60 really did something unusual by yoking the idea of the Silver Surfer to Dr. Doom. Uh, and again, furthering the sort of sideline epic that is the Inhumans that keeps going on uh, in there. There's also the story that uh, was on last week's episode, which is that the solo feature that Larry Lieber started and then other people continued, uh, which is the first appearance of Valeria. Yeah, and that's in Marvel superheroes, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, and so that was nearly contemporaneous with these FF issues yeah. um, right about at the same time. So uh, I noticed that Doom is a kind of uh, glue that holds the Marvel Universe together in a sense that he seems to be the first marquee villain to tra travel rather freely uh, between titles or among titles like Amazing Spider-Man and uh, um, Avengers and, and later Daredevil and Submariner and so on. Right. Um, so the fact that he's not getting exposed much in Fantastic Four between issue 60 and, you know, or 61 and 83, um, it struck me, you know, um, uh, obviously, as you said, Kirby and, and Lee would have been busy with other things uh, in FF, but um, uh, Doom gets around, uh, which, you know, um, uh, as the voice of Latveria reminds us, Dr. Doom uh, gets around. Um, Great. But it's it's interesting to see the Fantastic Four swept into a, a Latvarius um, set Doom right. story, uh, inspired by the prisoner, based on well, essentially being drafted into a Shield mission by Nick Fury, um, which is odd um, plot-wise. I think it's odd, uh, but all of that. It's it's interesting to see how the story and. Uh, number 84 takes place. I think by number 87, it's a different story and it has next to nothing to do with the prisoner. Uh, um, we should um, probably explain the prisoner for the benefit of impressionable young people who are just coming <laughs> to this podcast. So the prisoner mashed up James Bond's super spy antics with dystopic Orwellian science fiction and philosophical allegory. It was a short-lived television series lasting 17 episodes uh, produced in Britain. 
um, and distributed by Lou Grade's ITV Entertainment. Uh, it was a show that was in production uh, from 1966 to early 1968, and it had its broadcast premiere in the UK uh, in September of 1967, but it did not show on American television until the summer of 1968. Um, uh, on, on CBS, uh, in June of 1968, The Prisoner um, ran. The, the show starred and was executive produced uh, by Patrick McGowan, um, an Irish-American actor who was one of the hottest actors in world television at the time, having spent a handful of years playing a secret agent uh, in um, another ITV series, Danger Man, which is often called secret agent in the United States. So Patrick McGowan um, had been writing the James Bond super spy trend uh, with the Danger Man series starting in 1961. And in 1966, he wanted to do something else and he was ITV's hottest star. Um, and so uh, Lou Grade, the head of ITV um, uh, in Britain, um, agreed to McGowan's plan to create a rather new kind of show. Uh, and in this show, uh, a man with a high security or high level job of some kind, presumably a spy, uh, resigns from his job and is then kidnapped and um, taken to a strange facility in a remote undisclosed location, uh, a place called The Village, which is a sort of pseudo Italianate or Mediterranean uh, village. It looks like nothing so much as a bucolic tourist trap. The village is a place full of pleasant, kind of glassy-eyed, smiling, vacuous people, um, but it's also a prison. And our nameless hero, like everyone else in the village, is assigned a number. He becomes number six. This is the character played by Patrick McGowan. Uh, we never really do learn a proper name for him. Uh, and the powers that be behind the village want to know why this man has resigned. They presume he's in possession of secrets, state secrets, that he's a compromised person for that reason. Uh, they want to break his will and get him to confess his reasons for resigning, and he in turn simply wants to escape. And the 17 episodes of the series um, depict a series of stalemates between the iron-willed prisoner uh, and his equally unyielding captors including a succession of different characters all bearing the same title or office. They're all called number two, played by different actors and actresses over the course of the series. Uh, number two is sort of the functionary who uh, presumes to run the village uh, and uh, is constantly trying to outwit the prisoner and force him into divulging uh, his secrets. So it's kind of a spy show in a claustrophobic locale where everybody's making nice nice but in fact everyone's under surveillance all the time uh, and in that sense it's a little bit sinister um, and it's a little bit surreal um, and the show was the brainchild of Patrick McGowan and a script editor George Mark Stein uh, who had um, worked on McGowan's previous project Danger Man along with McGowan's production partner, David Tomlin. And so McGowan formed Everyman Films with Tomlin and Lou Grade financed this for ITV. Uh, and it was a show that intrigued and um, uh, outraged viewers in equal measure because it started out as a kind of Orwellian spy riff and then turned increasingly into a kind of, of surreal um, allegory in which um, things that are very difficult to explain happen, especially near the series end. So uh, George Markstein, the script editor, uh, I think um, was more comfortable imagining it in a kind of John le Carre or Frederick Forsyth kind of territory as an adult spy drama. Um, while um, executive producer and star Patrick McGowan, um, who uh, directed several episodes and wrote or ghost wrote or rewrote several episodes himself uh, had a different conception and so at times the prisoner you know the bits that uh, Mugun supervised that feel like Beckett or feel like the magical mystery tour <laughs> are the parts that George Markstein <laughs> was not as happy with uh, um, uh, and Markstein in fact left the project before its last few episodes uh, were filmed um, uh, and the, the last episode is is a real uh, uh, conundrum, um, yeah. a very late 60s kind of surreal exercise. It's a show that I loved ever since I saw it on public television in Los Angeles as a 12-year-old <laughs> in the late 70s, where it was presented as a very serious thing because it was right. already a cult attraction. So this show 
well, ITV in, in Britain made shows with the international market in mind and with the American market in mind in particular. In some ways, The Prisoner was uncompromisingly British, but it was always understood that they would try to uh, export this show. Um, and in fact, um, Prisoner was first broadcast in Canada a few hmm. weeks before, before it premiered in, in the UK. Um, so the show was sort of James Bondish, but there's a couple of um, uh, things to note about that. Uh, first of all, The Prisoner was something of a sequel, sort of, to the Danger Man series in which Patrick McGowan starred as Drake, John Drake, you know, a very James Bond-like character. McGowan always denied that The Prisoner was a sequel uh, uh, to Danger Man, and he denied that the prisoner uh, of the title was, in fact, John Drake from Danger Man. George Markstein said, oh, straight up, it was just John Drake. Um, so there was there was some disagreement about this. Um, interestingly, the Danger Man series... Uh, well, it would be tempting to say that it was just writing the coattails of the popular James Bond film phenomenon. That's not quite right. Um, the okay. Bond novels by Ian Fleming, of course, were quite popular by the early 60s. Danger Man went into production before Cubby Brockley's first Bond film, uh, Dr. No, starring Sean Connery, um, before that became a massive hit. Um, and in fact, the creator of Danger Man, a producer named Ralph Smart, uh, met with Ian Fleming uh, to discuss the possibility of making a James Bond TV show, only to discover that Fleming had licensed Bond uh, to Cubby Broccoli. Um, huh. So A Danger Man actually started to get made, and its first episodes appeared before the Bond film phenomenon took off, although I don't think it, it really became the hit that it did until the Bond mania was going, you know, until after Dr. No. Um, it's also the case that Patrick McGowan, star of Danger Man and the Prisoner, detested the character of James Bond. Um, uh, he was something of a staunch Catholic moralist, and he disapproved of Bond the murderer, Bond the libertine, Bond the user of women. Uh, and, and Danger Man was really conceived in that mode, and reportedly, when he got the first few scripts and read them, he was unhappy. Uh, and uh, McGowan, who was... Um, uh, you know, a star as auteur and always very strong-willed, uh, insisted upon uh, changes, which might be one reason why Danger Man had less gunplay and fatal violence than uh, the James huh. Bond films, and also why it was, compared to the Bond films, you know, unsexy. <laughs> so, um, but Danger Man did end up capitalizing on the Bond uh, uh, trend, uh, and so it made McGowan a big star, uh, first in British and then in American television, um, enough so that he could persuade Lou Grade to do something else that he wanted to do, uh, which was um, uh, The Prisoner. And The Prisoner is sort of close to the parts of the Bond canon that are most far out and science fictional and bizarre, um, except that The Prisoner um, is, is really... Uh, usually uh, kind of a two-fisted clash of philosophical notions kind of brought to life with a, with a lot of fighting and a lot of running and a lot of bids to escape and a lot of cool stuff. You know, the 12-year-old and me really loved that. But at the same time, um, uh, 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 Magoon was determined to make something very uh, serious, right? Um, and so uh, that's, that's what The Prisoner is. But visually... And this is where uh, Kirby and Fantastic Four 84, 85, uh, 86, that's where they take some of their cues. Visually, The Prisoner was a very stylish, kind of one-of-a-kind show uh, because, I mean, it had the expected gadgetry, as had Danger Man, as had the Bond films. Uh, it had surveillance gadgetry because it was about being surveilled constantly by the powers that be. So there's lots of um, images of... Of, of um, remote controlled cameras and things scraping the landscape and that sort of stuff. Um, but as you, um, um, uh, many of our listeners may know, the, uh, the exteriors of the prisoner were mostly filmed in a village in North Wales called Port Marion, uh, which was a kind of a glorious architectural boondoggle designed by a Welsh architect, Clough Williams Ellis, and actually built between the mid 20s, um, still under construction at the time, the prisoner exteriors were filmed there uh, in the late 60s. And, and Clough Williams Ellis um, created Port Marion to be an architectural fantasia in a vaguely Mediterranean style. He described it as an architectural mongrel. Uh, and Port Marion was made up of architectural salvage, including 
statues, colonnades, even whole buildings um, that were moved there um, and imitations of things that were built there. Uh, it's an Italianate villa. It has a, a large piazza in the center of town. It has these wide green lawns. It has uh, a distinctive bell tower. Um, uh, all of that, and in fact, a number of episodes of Danger Man, Patrick McGowan's previous series, had locations shooting in Port Marion, including the very first Danger Man, a story called The View from the Villa. Uh, and so they knew Port Marion in North Wales, and they returned there to shoot the exteriors uh, of this, it's been called an architectural bricolage. It's kind of Disneyland architecture in a way, right? So it's very synthetic and we might be tempted to call it postmodern. It's sort of Clough Williams Ellis rebelling against the uh, severe discipline of modernist architecture, right? And so that's what you get in the settings of the prisoner. Um, now, I, will, I will add one thing to that, which is about 20 years ago, I got to spend uh, a long weekend at an English seaside vacation village mm. in Cambersand, Sussex. Mm. And that is the other part of the look of the prisoner. Like I got mm. there, it's like, oh, now I see what mm. what this show was supposed to be. Like it, this is where you go on holiday. Right, right. But where you go on holiday, in fact, is a prison. It's a trap, right? So yeah. the idea is exactly. that there's, there's this nostalgia involved in this use of architectural salvage again the architectural mongrel um uh and uh you know so port marion has a a, a fascinating profile in history apart from its use as a, a location shoot in danger man and the prisoner um but it's steeped in nostalgia and so what you have in the village where the prisoner is trapped are these uh, smiling people you know the men wear straw boaters and boathouse blazers and people wear colorful capes and carry multicolored parasols as they walk across the Italianate piazza, you know, uh, um, and there's brass bands constantly going up and down, you know, uh, the town uh, and the, uh, people ride penny farthing bicycles. It, it's kind of like a, a, a Welsh version of Disneyland's Main Street USA. Right. right. So it's there's very much this nostalgia and um, the the uh, the citizens or inhabitants or inmates, whatever you want to call them, of the village are always, you know, uh, smiling at one another. Be seeing you. Uh, you know, uh, wonderful day, isn't it? You know, very pleasant. You know, and so uh, Patrick McGowan's character, the prisoner, is this obdurate kind of unyielding, angry guy in the midst of all this false uh, kind of conviviality. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, and what, uh, what, what we find in Latveria, when the Fantastic Four recruited by uh, Nick Fury and S.H.I.E.L.D. to go there, uh, is a sort of middle European version of this, right? right. Where um, splendidly Jack Kirby and Joe Sennett uh, on uh, Inks are delivering that kind of a vaguely central European setting that Kirby would also do so well, for example, in, in The Demon a few years later right. at DC. He's doing that kind of, um, so the architectural settings are closer to the Gothic Kirby um, and you can really see uh, just some beautiful renderings uh, of a, a storybook kind of, of European village you know so if you look at like um there's a great splash uh, page near the beginning of number 86 for example ff85 page four love that architecture right uh and then there's the high-tech stuff like the swirly kirby tech bits right uh and that sort of reflects the way the prisoner has its architectural mongrel and its kind of Mediterranean style and its nostalgia, right? But also has the sinister control room and all the modernist gizmos there, right? Uh, and the things that are distinctive, like the cordless telephones at the time, right? <laughs> or or the um, uh, the famous Eero uh, Arneo ball chair that number two often sits in. There's a great moment um, uh, in one of these issues uh, where Doom is sitting in the midst of a, 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 a huge circular, like donut-shaped console of Kirby Tech, uh, and then uh, his chair um, kind of uh, slides down into the floor um, exactly the way the chairs would do, kind of in in the village control room. Um, so you can see that Kirby, you know, working from memory, has kind of 
uh, pulled this idea. And it could only have been from memory because, you know, there, there's next to no visual reference for this show apart from what you could watch on CBS on Saturday night in the summer of 1968, right? Um, well, Avid, uh, this yeah. is not the first time that the era Arneo ball chair has come up on this show. Mm. Yeah, cool, cool nods to like 60s, you know, sort of modern, you know, and streamlined stylings and things like that, like the yeah. um, nowadays very kitschy use of the lava lamp imagery in The Prisoner, right. which we see a lot of, which at the time probably seemed like really, you know, trippy and, and wild. Um, so on the one hand, there's this world that's described in FF84 as a kind of like something out of a Gilbert and Sullivan operetta, as the character right. puts it. And then on the other hand, there are these kind of nods uh, to modernism often associated with the kind of unseen and oppressive authority uh, that's that's going on there. But the, the, the thing is, Prisoner starts showing on CBS on the 1st of June in 1968. And it's, it's a summer replacement for, of all things, the Jackie Gleason show, right? Huh. So you've got Gleason's vaudevillian kind of um, variety <laughs> show format. Um, this is near the end of, of Gleason's career as a, uh, that kind of variety uh, TV show host. Um, uh, but it's still a pretty popular, like, you know, top 30 whatever Nielsen ratings kind of show that Jackie Gleason and then the prisoner shows up in this time slot right <laughs> right opposite um like Adam 12 and get smart another riff on the bond phenomena from that period uh and then again opposite the dating game and the newlywed game so this is like a time in U.S. television where the Lawrence Welk show and the mod squad are equally popular right so you just think about that <laughs> for a moment right what's going on in terms of and it's a little bit before the kind of um the so-called purging of a lot of the sort of rural shows you're you know, i don't know like maybe petticoat junks and beverly hillbillies kind of stuff and and you know that a lot of that's in the mix of late 60s like uh, american network television here comes the prisoner it's in the jackie gleason time slot it's showing right before my three sons right and it shows up <laughs> you know um it must have been interesting enough to be repeated you know the following summer because the very next summer cbs showed all of the series again um uh, you know, the, the prisoner shows on June 1st um, uh, on CBS. The following week, it's not shown because, uh, as I recall, there's live uh, network coverage of the aftermath of the murder of Robert Kennedy, right, in the summer of 1968. The CBS does show the remainder of the prisoners, save one episode that they didn't show, uh, which takes them up to September and the resumption of the Jackie Gleason show in the new sure. season, right? So that's where the prisoner is in terms of the American tv landscape so the timing for this is that fantastic 484 is it appears a, a, like a december 1968 release right it's cover okay. dated march of 69 so we're talking about a handful of comics that are released between december 68 and the early spring of 69 um and the the time frame here you know in terms of kirby's workflow and in terms of marvel's workflow and how far ahead um things are being done uh, it's it's almost certainly has got to be the case that Kirby starts drawing Fantastic Four 84 in July of 1968. At this point, he's had an opportunity to watch, what, three, four, five episodes of this 17-episode series? So obviously it made a strong, immediate impression on him. Again, talking about Kirby being kind of a weather vane where you can see the stuff that interests him, right? Uh, um, you can see that, especially in comics where the premise is plastic enough for him to push it around from month to month, like Commandy, the last boy on earth. <laughs> oh, this time we're doing Day of the Dolphin. Next time it's going to be Westworld, whatever. Right? <laughs> you can kind of see his interest. Yeah. Uh, um, but he must have been really taken with the prisoner because um, to the extent that he can from memory, he recreates a number of tropes of the series. And again, how many weeks had this been showing on American television when he did this? Probably less than a month. Right. Wow. So there, there he is kind of zoned in on this thing. And, and he decides that Latveria, this sort of vaguely Balkan, vaguely Alpine, vaguely Middle European, you know, Dr. <laughs> Doom setting is going to be um, his uh, version of that kind of seaside British or slash Mediterranean you know, vacationer's prison. That's, right. that's going to be his thing. And naturally, he has Nick Fury 
uh, another Bond era kind of knockoff character talk the FF into doing this. Like Reed Richards was like, well, you know, got a new child at home, but I guess if we need to do this, you know. <laughs> and so the FF with passports in hand in plain clothes, um, um, you know, passed through some, uh, as we're told, communist uh, dominated country um, and into the borders of Latvia. Are they supposed to be incognito? Presumably not. Reed wants them to be noticed. But that's one of the many things about the story logic that I just can't suss. <laughs> you can really see uh, Fantastic Four, um, 84, 85, 86, responding to an immediate interest of Kirby. So it's not really surprising that in um, uh, 19... What seventy six? Um, uh, that um, Kirby should be asked by Stanley to um, write and draw an official Marvel adaptation of *The Prisoner*, a project that was to have been in the hands of Steve Englehart and Gil Kane, that Stanley gave over to Kirby, and that Kirby drew in the summer of seventy six, years after the series uh, was was done. Um, but you can tell that Kirby had an interest in this um, beyond just being, you know, picked to do uh, a licensed adaptation that... That's around yeah, the same time ahead. that, uh, that uh, Kirby is also doing his adaptation of 2001, The Space Odyssey, which is also, like, it's, it's a 1969 thing. Is, right, it's totally belated. Like, what is, yeah. what is going on here? And, you know, it might be that Lee remembered that Kirby had this yin for the prisoner uh, because Kirby had taken several issues of FF in that, um, in that direction. Um, but yeah, I mean, I understand Marvel doing like an adaptation of Logan's Run in the mid '70s when Logan's right. Run was a new movie. I don't quite understand where you know the Kubrick adaptation and Magoon adaptation come from in the mid '70s, but um, uh, but it must have been an abiding uh, uh, interest of of Kirby. So um, I think I think from, from my point of view, what we, what we get uh, in that arc of FF '84 to '87. Uh, is some splendid drawing of Victor Von Doom and some splendid moments of characterization of Victor Von Doom uh, within a story that is really irresolute. He doesn't quite know where, where, it's, where it's going, right? And, and so it, it ends up being about a battle with giant robots. Right. <laughs> and and subsequently a kind of uh, morality play that ends on an odd note with the end of the arc, Fantastic Four 87. Um, but it starts out as wanting to be this kind of um, Orwellian prisoner thing where beneath all this kind of glad handing, you know, neighborliness of, of people in the village, there's actually terror, you know, there's a, a, a barely concealed terror. So it, it wants to do that thing. But, you know, there's also a felt need to get back into physical action. So when you get to FF86, most of it's a fight scene right. uh, because it's a long deferred fight scene because for a couple of issues, uh, Johnny and Crystal and, and Reed and Ben have been persuaded hypnotically that they don't actually have powers. And so they're just restive, you know, and maybe they or some of the readers would be champing at the bit. So there's finally a big Donnybrook uh, in the third issue of this arc. Um, and by then, the sort of prisoner-like notions have been uh, cast off. They've sort of been sh uh, shucked off. But uh, to see Kirby tacking in the direction of the prisoner um, in the first two issues of the arc is, is where my um, initial interest really came from. And all that hypno stuff, the hypno persuader, like it's going to convince you that you don't have the powers that you have. That's a very prisoner thing. Like yeah. the, the mind control and post-hypnotic suggestion and mind swapping. Um, how many moments in the prisoner does Patrick McGowan have electrodes stuck to his forehead? You know, there's just like, <laughs> there's a bunch of that stuff. So it's very like prisoner tropey, uh, you know, until it isn't. It isn't when Doom's robots go on the rampage because the, the impetus for this story is for, uh, you know, the FF to go at Nick Fury's behest and find a secret army, right? Uh, a strange and secret army, uh, which turns out to be a dozen big brawling robots um, that terrorize everybody in FF86 and then sort of get, uh, Davis X Mackinut out of the picture, <laughs> you know. So it, it's just a I don't know, I don't know. It's a, it's a strange um, it's a strange arc. <laughs> there, there are a couple of 
fascinating doom moments in the middle of it. Mm. Uh, one of them is in Fantastic Four 85, where we see Doom's portrait being painted. Yes. This is not a thing that we'd ordinarily see. And we get a full page splash of him saying, At last I can bear the sight of my face without my mask. And soon, when I am ruler of all mankind, the entire human race will be forced to stare at the real Dr. Doom. Indeed, by royal decree, my face shall set the new standards for masculine beauty throughout the globe. Now, in this scene, <laughs> we still can't see his face. Right, and I have that note scrawled in pencil on a piece of paper, new standards for masculine beauty yeah. throughout the globe. Um, yeah. And the very next page, Doom says his face is like hideously scarred and misshapen. <laughs> but yeah, he's got this like fur-lined outfit and and he's got a crown on his head and he's not in the usual doom um uh costume but he's holding a handheld mirror a very fancy thing um uh just so so that it hides his face um for everyone except well actually no one except the artist painting the portrait can actually see doom's unguarded face right so it's a real meta moment, page 18 in FF85. I love that splash. It's so weird. Um, Doom is seen, but he's not seen. The only person who would see him, who's trying to capture a likeness, is um, uh, the artist at the easel who rather Kirby-like is drawing or painting Doom, right? Um, and Doom's like, I'm going to be the new standard of masculine beauty. And he's like, there's this moment of, of real... Um, of course, preening vanity is not um, uh, a new thing for our Lord Doom, right? right. But here it takes this um, really ripe form. I think it's uh, really interesting. I mean, we know that Kirby conceived of Doom as someone who had only the slightest scratch on his face, whose vanity was wounded more than his face. Now, um, that's not something, yeah, that, that hasn't consistently been held to by everybody. But It has that, not been consistently yeah. held to. It has not been consistently held to by Kirby. Right. In, fa mm -hmm. in Fantastic Four 10, when he takes off his mask, people are recoiling at how hideous he is. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's that is Kirby drawing that too. So that like that clearly was not part of Kirby's conception of Doom from the beginning. It became part of it at some point. Yeah, it's just such a fabulous splash. Uh, again, there's this almost kind of Rococo sensibility. Um, there's all kinds of bric-a-brac. Um, you find this kind of bric-a-brac in castles and stuff. Again, you can see it in like Kirby's Demon. In the meantime, there's a Doom robot guard equipped with a huge rifle that's standing just kind of over the artist at his easel. Now, the, the artist um, changes appearance between 85 and 87. He, he's ah. bald, and then he's not bald if he's presumably the same artist who is later revealed to be a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. So there's a little bit of a continuity kerfuffle there. Uh, but the, the, the artist, we are told, in 87 was responsible not only for capturing Doom's likeness in the portrait, but also for taking care of Doom's art gallery full of priceless masterpieces, uh, right? Which becomes a really important plot, plot point in 87. It but I love Doom with this, this costume that we never see yeah. uh, again. And it's so, it's, it's like um, Maximus's costume yeah. uh, a few months earlier. Uh, in preening in his glory as the you know the usurper of the of the of the of the um, inhumans um, kingship or leadership, you know again a full page uh, spread showing with elaborate detail uh, a kind of it's a real vanitas kind of thing, <laughs> including uh, the mirror that serves as as Doom's affirmation but also serves to block his face uh, from now, two yeah two notes on uh, that particular image. One of them is, it's interesting to think about that in the context of, uh, there's an article by Jason Farago that was in the New York Times a couple months ago about a, a very small portrait of uh, the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan uh, seen in his finery holding and regarding a miniature of himself. I have no idea if that's that's something that Kirby would have seen or been able to see, but it's it's interesting to to compare like the look of this image and the look of that image uh, when when I, when I put post this on the website I'll try to uh, post an image of that as well. I also want to note that this is not the last that we see of the artist's portrait of Doom. Mm -hmm. uh, it much much further down the line becomes the MacGuffin for the entire Superior Foes of Spider-Man series. <laughs> but of course, but of oh course. man. 
that painting, which we still never see, but it is the one likeness of Doom's face that has been turned into art. Mm. Here's the thing. Here's one of the reasons why the prisoner graph doesn't really work, right? Doom is not a bureaucrat, right? He is no one's number two. Right. If you know exactly, and in fact, anytime <laughs> anyone suggests that he's anyone's that he's a number two or even a one and a half or tied with one, yeah. he gets pissed, right? Yeah. So, but what happens in the prisoner is that even though many of the actors and actresses who played the role of number two are, are vivid, you know, they're distinct, and some of them were quite distinguished and well-known actors. Um, I was rewatching an episode with Leo McKern this morning. My God, you know, he's so great. Uh, um, but they nonetheless are bureaucratic functionaries despite their differences in affect, their looks and personality, um, each week they're replaced by another person bearing the same title, um, someone else who gets to try to break the prisoner's will. Um, and so in a sense, uh, you know, they're bureaucratic functionaries, despite the Orwellian, you know, um, sinister nature of the village and all the surveilling technology and everything. There's a sense that it's a job. You know, it's a gig, it's a job, you know, and one number two after another has it. So they're functionaries, right? It's a title, not a name. Oh, Doom is not a bureaucrat, he's a potentate, right? <laughs> so, uh, and the story sort of struggles with this because on the one hand, the the village-like premise of people who are compared to puppets or sleepwalkers, as we're told um, in FF84 and 85, um, it really demands a kind of banality, right? There's too much grandeur in Lord Doom's Latveria for it to really deliver on that kind of um, um, designed banality that is the village, right? Um, and that's one of the ways in which the story doesn't quite jibe. And that may be one reason why in the end, we have Doom's you know, a strange and secret army of even better robots than the other robots he's made before, you know, uh, and there's a big fight, you know, uh, um, uh, and there's kind of a resistance moment where the villagers gather with the FF. It's it's kind of like maybe it's like a Sergeant Fury moment or something, you know, um, and they're going to try, you know, um, uh, best they can to fight back against these super robots. That's the story that hijacks the kind uh, because the 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 first part of the story is about you know and this is a loaded phrase um for reasons that maybe we'll come back to is about the banality of evil right Right. there's nothing banal about doom and so the (laughs) print the premise sits oddly right um because uh in order for the happy smiling people of that village um uh to appear uh as uh, ciphers functionaries, prisoners, victims, uh, uh, whatever you want to call them, uh, you have to embrace this a notion of the banality of evil. But we've just been talking about doom in like one of his fanciest get-ups ever in a huge crown posing for this, you know, (laughs) self-flattering portrait. And um, that's not... um, that's not something that meshes with the idea of uh, a village dominated by bureaucratic forces, right? There's even a suggestion in Magoo's Prisoner that the village is simply um, uh, foretells how the whole world is going to go as a kind of bureaucratized and uh, anonymized kind of form of order. And that's never going to be the case with Dr. Doom's cult of personality as the ruler of well, Latveria. That also means that there's, there's no way to rebel against it in a number six like sort of way right you don't don't have this system to break free of uh through your for through your force of will it's just the fantastic four being first brainwashed and then not Mm -hmm. brainwashed right yeah exactly the hypno persuader that brainwashes them is very much a prisoner device but then again doom has you know tons of nitroglycerin underneath the village he's willing to blow it sky high you know he's willing to sacrifice all the subjects who live in the village but then again at the fatal moment in the second to last page of 86 he's like oh my subjects i forgot you know i forgot that i was about to annihilate so many of my faithful subjects he seems to momentarily regret this it's unclear whether he's unleashed the robots to, to wreak havoc as, as 
because he wants to, because it's a test, because he's going to defeat the FF finally, whom he could have easily defeated a couple of issues before. He could have easily slain them. You know, it's uh, and then he's like, well, no, my subjects. Oh, my gosh. You know, oh, my bad. You know, <laughs> so there, there's this thing where um, the, the need for some uh, kind of knuckle dusting action uh, uh, kind of drives the story, I think, toward. And, and in that sense, the characterization of Doom is inconsistent, right. right? You know, for me, Victor Von Doom exudes grandeur. Doom has grandeur, right? But on the other hand, there are moments in this story where he's about to slaughter everyone in the village. Uh, and then again, there's a moment where he's like, oh, I forgot them, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, and of course, um, grandeur is not really what the prisoner is about. The prisoner setting wise is about um, um, surveillance hidden under uh, a kind of, of, of architectural nostalgia, right? Uh, so um, so that, that thing kind of sits weirdly and the story migrates. So what's happening by, the, by number 86 is quite different from what the pitch seems to be in 85. Uh, I, I, I think, um, I mean, naturally, the MacGuffin, you know, the, 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 the object of the quest was to find out about the secret army and, and that's robots and that's consistent all the way through. Um, but the part that really accounts for the reputation of this particular arc uh, has to do with this grafting, uh, maybe uneasy grafting of elements from the prisoner into, into, this, into this plot, or at least that's how I, I looked at it. So. Now, uh, in my experience, and just from the way I have talked to other people about this story in mm -hmm. really just the last few months, the part that has really stuck with people about this story is, is the final episode. It's, it's 87, yes. where all, the, all of that is left behind, and we get a couple of fantastic Doom moments, mm -hmm. including like, the conclusion of the story, which is, you know, the cover... Uh, calls it possibly the most offbeat ending of the year. And mm -hmm. maybe it's not so much that, but it is a very, very interesting moment that tells us a lot about Doom. Yeah. Um, I want to say that there's a lot of killer splash pages in this arc, and most of them are focused upon Victor Von Doom. Yeah. And some of them are killer because they have a terrific Kirby tech. Uh, and then some of them are killer because they are these moments of doom characterization, like the portrait painting uh, that we were talking about. In number 87, he's got that wonderful full page image of doom yelling in profile while yes. his flunky Hauptmann is standing off to the side to the left in the background of the image. It's a very unusual angle for Dr. Doom. Um, and the other great splash, I think, in that issue is when Crystal and Sue arrive uh, at doom's banquet, uh, where yeah. doom tries to give them a display of gallantry or false gal uh, gallantry and all the cooks, all the chefs and the servants are there and there's a table set with candles and food, you know, <laughs> that's like and completely... it's the chefs who are in the foreground of that. Yes. One of whom looks like Kirby if he had a mustache drawn on him and the other holding the knife to carve looks like Stan Lee to me. Um, that's, that's a way wow. I can... That's yeah. kind of because oh, it's certainly the Lee one on the right, a man holding a knife and a sharpener as if he's about yeah. to lay into carving a bird uh, <laughs> looks like 60s Lee like to me. Uh, um, we know that Kirby never sported a mustache like the man who's lifting the lid on the terrain in the splash panel. <laughs> but uh, apart from the mustache, you know, I keep thinking I should Photoshop this mustache away and see what I think of the resulting appearance <laughs> wow. because it's like, oh, my pretties, you have arrived. Let me sh serve you this great banquet. <laughs> and and the, the two foregrounded like chef's hat figures, like your traditional chef's figures, uh, they're not the only characters in this arc that I think might be based on likenesses of real people. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's that's a lot that's, going around. Yeah, there's a weirdness like when Sue is searching for a new home back in the yeah. U.S. of A. Um, there's this bit uh, in 85, I think, where yeah. um, there are several kids and they they look <laughs> – they have very particular likenesses. Yeah, um, they look like um, they were drawn – like they're drawings of particular people. Now, what's, one of the things that interests me about that's just, just a side note, I think we should come back to 87 full force in a moment, is that the little side note cross-cutting to Sue looking for a new home, 
uh, you know, the way we might date the composition of these issues, and this is the way that John Morrow certainly uh, dates this in his Stuff Said book, which is, um, you know, about the, the creation of Marvel as viewed from um, Kirby perspectives and Lee perspectives, uh, um, is that um, Kirby has begun to, um, Kirby or his family have begun to seek a new home in California. That's actually happening at the time um, that these, um, that this kind of run of FF is going on. Uh, Kirby may have visited California and certainly the FF are looking for a new home. Well, Sue's looking for a home, right? Um, uh, and that turns out to be the lead for uh, a kind of shaky story that follows involving the mole man, um, you know, but notably um, Sue, the the uh, mother of a newborn is looking for a new place to live. And that feels maybe not intentionally, but crypto autobiographical because um, we've got lifelong New Yorkers that are about to move to the West coast. Uh, it's, you know, the FF are not moving to the West coast to be clear, but it's like that thing. Um, but yeah, it feels like there's likenesses of real people there. Uh, and it certainly feels that way to me with those chef figures. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and again, you know, like doom, homicidal maniac, doom, you know, convivial host, doom, you know, <laughs> you know? and, uh, um, but I love that. I mean, coming back to 87, the important character in 87 is Hauptmann. Yeah. That's the character, right? Because that is the yeah. thing that stays with me because that's where the most interesting moral drama of this particular arc is. I mean, as a prisoner fan, it's interesting to me to see Kirby adapting those ideas. But Hauptmann is the one uh, uh, a character that makes a dent kind of in, in my memory. Um yeah. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about this because Hauptmann is a character that delights in Doom's tyranny, in, in Doom's would-be absolute mastery. He's not somebody who appears to be cowed by it or coerced in it, right? Uh, you know, uh, as the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent uh, says to Hauptmann in 87, you revel in his tyranny, right? And we learned that Hauptmann is, of course, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, um, um, a uh, leftover Nazi, Right. right, loyal to his Fuhrer, and we're even told in one line of dialogue that Doom had sort of snatched Hauptmann from the service of the Red Skull in order to serve him, right? So the Third Reich falls, uh, and Hauptmann finds a new master. He finds a new master ultimately in Doom. Uh, and this is established in more than one issue where there's a reference to kind of a, a Nazi genealogy for Hauptmann. Right. You know, uh, and that's... Uh, so he's got some Nazi cred, and this wouldn't be the first time that Kirby and Lee hark back to World War II connections. We can think of like the hate monger story, right, 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 know, right. in FF. So we have we have that kind of thing going on, uh, and that's why I, um, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm thinking about um, Hannah Arendt's famous phrase, "the banality of evil," right, right, um, uh, because although you know the trial of Eichmann you know, takes place uh, years before '62, uh, I think. Um, uh, and that's where, you know, Eichmann in Jerusalem is where, uh, 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 you know, where he was put on trial and ultimately executed for Nazi war crimes. Uh, we have Hannah Arendt's famous phrase, the banality of evil, that and, and some people really were um, uh, outraged by her analysis of Eichmann as a rather an ordinary man, a bureaucratic functionary. And some people have contested that, right? But part of the, the if we take Eichmann's testimony, at face value, he's like a functionary. I'm just doing what I'm told, you know. Right. Uh, and Hannah Arendt kind of takes from that the idea of the banality of evil that um, um, that Eichmann is, uh, like many of the people who carried out, um, um, you know, Hitler and the Nazi regime's terrifying plans. Uh, he was just a functionary. Uh, well. Uh, Hauptmann here in FF87 might be a little bit more than a functionary because, as again, he sort of revels in being, um, you know, um, at the right hand of doom, kind of. You know, he's sort of, uh, uh, sorry, inadvertent Hellboy reference, right hand of doom. That wasn't intended. <laughs> sorry. But he, he, he delights in being the, the, the functionary of doom. Um, but he's a guy who thinks that if he torches, you know, Reed and Johnny and Ben, that he'll, he'll win doom's favor. Right, um, and so the Nazi connection, even though it's never made visually, it's made in the dialogue, seems important for understanding this guy. Right. And then it's Doom that kills Hauptmann because Hauptmann shows no concern for the 
uh, collection, the world's greatest masterpieces, quote unquote. You know, even the Shield agent who was spying on Doom. Uh, so we, we should we should actually e explain what's happening in this scene. Okay, uh, so there, there's a bit where. Um, the FF have regained their powers and they're charging the castle to get to Doom. And, and Doom opens a trap door beneath Sue and Crystal. Uh, thank God Sue is back, right, after several months of being sort of uh, sidelined, frankly, in the wake of, of her uh, child's birth. Uh, Sue uh, is back. Uh, Sue and Crystal get dropped on a trap door and they end up making their way through token resistance, a token resistance on Lord Doom's order. Uh, and they end up in this banquet place where, you know, a Doom is trying to shower them with gallantry and hospitality. Uh, and he's going to, as he puts it, perform a concerto, right? He's going to do that. He's going to do the villainous esthete thing. He's going to perform the concerto, um, uh, he's which is piano with hypersound. Right, which is going to actually be a means of assassination, although he doesn't sell Crystal and Sue that. And uh, he is playing the piano with his armored gloves, as you observed in your conversation with Alex Ross, right? Yeah, delicate fingered on those armored gloves, right? Tickling the ivy with his armored hands. And he's going to do that. Um, and you know. uh, the music stand on his piano is actually a video monitor. It's surveilling his property and seeing that, what's, what's going on. That's right. And so, meanwhile, Ben and Johnny and Reed are on their way, uh, um, uh, uh, trying to confront Doom and 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 stage rescue. And they pass through a gallery of stuff that Reed presumes has been looted from the world's museums. A gallery of priceless masterpieces, statuary, paintings, and so on. Uh, so it's like Doom's own personal Louvre, right? Uh, Hauptmann, uh, Doom's functionary, confronts the team there. He's got a flamethrower or such a such like device with him. And he says, well, I'm going to win Doom's favor. You know, I, I'm going to kill the, the shield agent, uh, the artist who's outed as, as a shield agent, and I'm going to kill the FF, right? Because and the, the flamethrower is really going to do a lot of good against the human torch. Right, and, and exactly. Uh, and he's he, he's going to kill the artist as shield agent, and the, and the artist is like, well, uh, you know, um, think about uh, all these priceless the masterpieces. I mean, the shield agent genuinely is an artist. He cares about art. He does. He says, like, kill me if you must, but don't, you know, like, this is, so it's like a monuments men kind of moment. Like, don't destroy these priceless masterpieces. Um, uh, and Doom, in fact, does choose immortal art, as he puts it, over human life. He is so angered at Hauptmann for preempting his, uh, what he presumed would be his perfect plan, that Doom directs his hypersound assault on the piano at Hauptmann and kills him. Right. And then he says, I'm, I'm tired of, um, you know, I'm tired of this grim charade. I'm tired of the game. He sends the FF on their way in a very hurried last page. Like, yeah, we're done. Yeah. Right. Um, but, but Hauptmann is the one who, in trying to curry favor with Doom, ends up being murdered by Doom. Right. You know, uh, the, the hypersound device reminds you of the Watergate episode of Commandy, where there's that wonderful line, the apes have learned to kill by sound. You know, <laughs> <laughs> So Doom is, kills Hauptmann with sound because Hauptmann would be presumptuous enough to torch the world masterpieces in an attempt to get at Doom's enemies and curry favor with Lord Doom. And right. so Doom but is regal again, right? Um, and also irritated that one of his um, servitors would, in a sense, preempt his own grand plans. Um, so uh, I, I think that that character, Hauptmann, and his fate, right? Um, um, you know, he's attacked by sound and he falls down dead. Yeah, that's the most interesting thing. I think it's Hauptmann's figure on the cover of FF87 lying in the bottom center, sort of cropped yeah. by the bottom of the image. That's how I interpret it. Um, one of the most striking atmospheric and unusual uh, FF covers, as my friend Craig Fisher pointed out to me, like a great cover um, and a very quiet cover for, for a Marvel uh, book or, or any FF Everyone's book. Everyone's just walking uh, away. Yeah, that's right. Um, in a way... The, the whole prisoner thing turns out to be a shaggy dog story and sort of disappointing, but the fate of Hauptmann kind of provides, um, gives issue 87 a real interesting identity of its own, I think. It's this little moral drama about this toady, you know, kind of a uh, would-be um, a servant to power uh, who is ultimately um, killed by doom because he's just not grand enough, I guess, right? And, you know, that that is the part of this that stuck with a lot of writers and artists. We, we actually see Houtman's brother down the line mm -hmm. who looks very mm -hmm. much like him and tries mm -hmm. to get his revenge on Doom. 
but mm. yeah, that's it's it's a fantastic ending, and it is Doom concluding the story by asserting his status as an esthete. Yeah, that's right. The villain as esthete, um, very much so. It reminds me of, and this again relates to the Wagnerism discussion you had with Alex Ross. But you may know that there's a later Kirby comic from the Losers series in nineteen uh, in the nineteen seventies called "Kill Me with Wagner." Uh, which <laughs> I did not know that. involves a Nazi officer confronting the losers. It's um, from that short-lived run of Kirby's on that war comic, uh, um, uh, Our Fighting Forces, I think. But the Nazi villain is an esthete, right? And as uh, Alex Ross discusses in Wagnerism, often, you know, a love of Wagner becomes like the trope for villainy, you know, <laughs> in, in popular culture, right? So Kirby's kind of... Uh, explicitly links that with Wagner with a kind of, of Nazi officer as esthete type of, of, of riff in the losers. But, you know, but doom, you know, doom in his portrait, doom in his gallery of the world's greatest masterpieces is like, uh, you know, uh, doom with his chefs. I mean, it's everything. He's, he's like the esthete, you know, and, um, and it's a sort of, this I'm saying, it's sort of as, as if he's saying uh, when Crystal and Sue confront him, well, as a hospitable tyrant, I will show you two lovely ladies a great time, <laughs> but all in a way that affirms his status as the most cultured villain yeah. of all, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who else is like this in comic books? The ultra cultured villain. There, there must be others, right? Um, who affect this kind of status. Um, I mean, there's plenty of supercilious villains you know, who can, can kind of do the no Mr. Bond, I expect you to die kind of thing. Yeah, well, uh, I want to say Count Nefaria, but there, yeah. nobody doesn't like Doom. Yeah. Nobody. Uh, the, the little man who scurries around um, trying to ingratiate himself yeah. uh, to to power, right? Um, uh, that is um, really interesting to me. And again, I think it's the, the kind of the most original uh, moment of of moral drama um, in in this particular story. Um, it's also like he he is the character for whom Kirby reserves his contempt. He he might be a little too smart or distinct to be just a toady, but he, he's kind of a toady, you know. Yeah. You know, at Helpman reminds me of moments uh, like the um, New Origin that Kirby and Lee um, created for for the Red Skull uh, in those retro World War II set stories that they did um, in in the 60s, where where the Red Skull is a bellhop. He's a complete complete anonymity, but so thoroughly does he devote himself to the Nazi ideal that he exceeds Hitler in a way. Um, and, And again... Um, you know, the, 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 the dynamics of power between um, the Lickspittle and the Potentate, or the Lickspittle and the Fuhrer, you know, um, it's just that, that kind of uh, thing um, really interests Kirby, and he reserves some of his greatest um, wrath <laughs> for, for, those, for those kinds of characters. I, I loved rereading, um, I loved rereading that story. Um, I also just want to observe that Kirby Senate are like terrifyingly good <laughs> visually um, as they are throughout this this period. Uh, um, yeah, I've seen. I don't know if they're surviving for the stats of Kirby's pencils from any of these issues. The splash page of one of those issues looked really familiar uh, from at some point when I've seen Kirby pencils of that or something similar. Mm-hmm. But Kirby's pencils at this point have just incredible like depth and shading and are so 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 hard to translate into ink lines mm. and Sinat does it better than anybody else has done it yeah and i think uh um i mean besides just um grooving on the <laughs> the wonderful craft of it all uh i think some of these portraits of doom uh along with the village architecture i say are are the places where um there's just a great variety of, of textures and you can see Joe Sennett's sensitivity uh, and, and intelligence um, in, in the inking uh, kind of uh, uh, laid on here. Um, the character likenesses are a little more rugged than the earlier Sennett uh, Kirby um, FF. So 
like Reed will get a more rugged look um, and things like that. Um, uh, it's maybe not as not quite as, as slick, um, uh, but um, the, the, the texture of things that he needs to render all that Kirby tech and to render dooms standing for his portrait and stuff that is slick. Uh, Joe sent it and it, it, it really does wonderfully um, because like in the, in the banquet scene with the chefs and everything, you really need uh, to have that, that attention to, uh, 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 to texture right? that, that makes it um, uh, all the more wonderful. Now this story is, is also kind of Kirby's last major stab at doom. Like doom will show up for, there's doom shows up for a cameo in fantastic four 100, but it's actually just a doom bot or robot, not even a doom bot, like a robot replica of doom. Uh, this is his last big doom story. And that scene of him just sort of waving the fantastic four away, you know, the fight ends when I say it ends by like, that's, that's his last real statement on the character. Yeah. Yeah. It's, seems to be Kirby's last opportunity to insinuate some things about Doom. And, and as we've been saying, it may be that the Doom that he envisions here is not quite the same Doom that he has depicted in some of the previous, um, right. some of the previous comics, um, uh, which I, I think this, um, I think makes this even more um, uh, interesting. And again, um, seeing uh, the renderings of Doom in this—it's—it's—it's uh, uh, it's, it's just incredible to me. I—I—I I, I will say I don't think that as an arc this one coheres in the way that fifty-seven through sixty uh, does. But if if we consider its highest moments, especially the standalone offbeatness of issue 80, eighty-seven, uh, um, then then yeah, it really is an interesting. Uh, statement about this character and you would be in a good position to see how the characterization cues established in 87 are taken up by subsequent uh, writers uh, and artists um, um, but coming after a long hiatus from doom appearances in ff um, uh, 87 is a great way for kirby to go out as it were with this character Charles Hatfield, thank you so much again for joining us. Next week, we've got Brian Stratton coming in to talk about Submariner number 20 and Rise of the Black Panther number 4. Meanwhile, if you've got any questions about anything having to do with Doctor Doom, this show, or Latverian culture in general that you'd like us to answer, the address to email them to is faithfulretainerboris at voiceoflatveria.com. The Voice of Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflotveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Wolk for the VOL. Douglas Wolk appears by special arrangement with Universe 1218. His book, All of the Marvels, is a guided tour of 60 years and half a million pages of the Marvel comic story. All of the Marvels will be published by Penguin Press this October. Lord Doom commands you to order it. Zero, two, zero. This is the voice of Latvia. Zero, two, zero. Tomorrow, on Get Hip to the New Bag, Chain, MGH, Unveil, Spin, Acid Sea, Jazz, Maze, Rave. It seems like every year, a wave of new, highly addictive and increasingly dangerous street drugs arrives. They may promise to take their users to new heights of bliss, or even to give them superpowers. But their consequences can be fatal, or worse. A single hit of the new drug ace, or a seldomer, can turn its users into a thrall of Aaron Thorne and put them into the service of the vampire Lord Varney. What are these oddly named drugs, and how can you tell if your kids are talking about them? That's Get Hip to the New Bag, tomorrow on the VOL. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies, until you die. <laughs>